You are now listening to Macrodose. Hello and welcome to Macrodose, a podcast hosted by me, James Meadway, that brings you your weekly fix of everything economics in a quick 15-minute roundup. Each Wednesday morning, we bring you the key stories making the news and the analysis you need to make sense of them. On today's episode, we'll be taking a look at First, a listener question, the one you've all been waiting for. Where do we all stand on universal basic income versus universal basic services? Second, as New York chokes in apocalyptic smog, the Labour Party decides to shrink its £28 billion a year green prosperity plan. And finally, news from India of Kerala's new publicly owned broadband scheme. I wanted to change things slightly this week and begin with a listener question partly because it's a big one and merits diving into in a bit more depth, and partly because this is a topic that's been doing the rounds quite a bit recently in progressive circles, and maybe a bit too much if, like me, you perennially find yourself stuck in the black hole of debate that is Elon Musk's Twitter. This question was sent to us by Patreon supporter Harry, who says, Hi James, thanks so much for all the great work. I was really pleased when Macrodice was announced. It has definitely filled a space that was lacking in the podcast world. It's a weekly staple. I just had a question in relation to Autonomy's announcement for their planned universal basic income trial. This is really exciting and seems great, but I was just wondering if you could shed some light on this idea in relation to universal basic services or the social guarantee, as some argue that this is a more comprehensive solution. So thanks for that, Harry, and it's a great question, and one that has been the subject of much debate since the Autonomy Think Tank, which does some really good work, announced its intention to trial a locally-led basic income pilot in central Jarrow and the Grange area of East Finchley earlier this month. So under the pilot, 15 people in Jarrow and 15 people in Grange, East Finchley, will receive a basic income of £1,600 a month for two years. Researchers will work with the people getting these payments to understand the difference they make to their lives. And then this research and people's stories were used to make the case for a national basic income and more comprehensive trials to fully understand the potential of basic income in the UK. This pilot would also ensure evaluation materials work and produce valuable primary data that can be used for further research in the short term. Now, the announcement kicked up a stir on social media and beyond and restarted an age-old debate about the relative costs and benefits of providing a national, universal basic income against spending to make other public services free at the point of use, which has become known as universal basic services. Now, the starting point of my response here is that this discussion of UBI, universal basic income, versus UBS, universal basic services, is a bit of a false opposition. We should, obviously, be aiming for a world where we can provide both UBI and UBS. But there are more complex questions here of strategies and priorities. So let's start with the objections to UBI, many of which are outlined by Navara Media co-founder Aaron Bastani in The New Statesman last week. The primary issue he flags is around expense and value for money. Aaron writes that a UBI scheme in Britain would cost around £170 billion a year, Citing figures from the think tank slash pressure group Compass, Aaron says such a scheme would reduce child poverty only from 16% to 10% and have little to no impact on pensioner poverty. For slightly more than the cost of the NHS, which costs £160 billion a year, Aaron thinks we could do more with the money to be spent on UBI. There's a couple of problems with this. The first is that the Compass study being used is from 2016, and the figures Aaron picks up on are the minimum change scheme, which is intended to run alongside the existing benefit system. Compass have since updated their figures with a 2022 report, which provides three different UBI options. 
Each of these is intended to set a high minimum income floor for the population. In other words, making sure every person would have at least this minimum income guaranteed. On the updated figures, the minimum UBI scheme, paying £63 a week to adults and £190 to pensioners, can be implemented at zero additional cost because as you introduce UBI, you can remove older benefits that it replaces. Compass also recommends some income tax changes, reducing the personal allowance and raising the highest income tax rates, for example. So using a model of the UK population, the distributional effects of this are dramatic. The poorest 10% see their incomes rise on average by 140%, and everyone up to the top 20% sees an improvement in their household incomes. Unlike Aaron's 2016 figures, child poverty under this scheme would fall from 27% to 12%, and pensioner poverty from 17% to 8%. In other words, this will be a very major shift in the balance of income in Britain, with hugely dramatic impacts on some of the poorest people who live here. The point here is that this isn't doing UBI as an add-on to a deeply flawed benefit system. It's that UBI presents the opportunity to completely redesign the system. This could include raising taxes to be significantly more redistributive and, as we touched on in last week's show, embedding the idea that everyone must be entitled to a certain minimum standard of living. We're limiting our vision if we're not thinking beyond the existing structures and forms of welfare. And it has to be said, constrained horizons have been a weakness of the left, not only in Britain, but across the developed world over the last decade. Since 2008, so much of what we've been doing has been defined by opposition to the fallout from the crash. It's anti-austerity, it's protect the NHS, it's this defensive posture. And so instead of presenting a vision, a real alternative beyond that to the existing systems of capitalism, you get something that is always lined up to say, we must defend what we've already got. And maybe somewhere down the line, you think about some of the inadequacies in this. You saw this in Corbynism. The manifestos, particularly in 2017, were typically framed as ending austerity and restoring the kind of pre-neoliberal, pre-Thatcher, pre-Blair provision of public services and public utilities. This brings me to the concept of universal basic services. I'm not a massive fan of this as a framing. I think it's giving an unnecessarily technical sort of wonkish gloss to a bunch of things that are really plain old post-war social democracy, free healthcare, free education, free communications. It has some resonance on the left, I suspect because it sounds like you're offering something really radically new and different when you're basically offering the same programme the left has presented for decades, just extending it a bit further. Aaron actually argues this in his essay, that, quote, UBS builds on something everyone is already familiar with, the post-war provision of public services. Now, there is a powerful, positive case you can make for protecting the good things that we have and trying to win arguments for new provision by reference to the old. The Marxist philosopher Jerry Cohen, in some of his last writings before he died back in 2009, presented the case for a left-wing conservatism, that wanting to preserve the value in what is good is a solid aim for progressives, and we shouldn't leave these sorts of arguments to the actual political conservatives. But there's a deeper problem at work here, which is that the reality of the world we live in is increasingly incompatible with the demand to keep things as they are, or return to normal. We are increasingly being challenged by radically new circumstances, from a largely unanticipated new coronavirus to the development of particular kinds of machine learning to the unexpected side effects of climate change on supply chains. To try and preserve what we value in all this actually demands being far more radical and demanding. We must, as I said last week, begin to think about the institutions of the future and what they could look like. The environmental movement is, as you might expect, a, a source of this kind of political innovation. 
So the demand for access to the countryside and for rewilding, for example, starts to pose a challenge to existing property rights and long-standing laws in the name of preserving and defending ecology. UBS could and should be part of this form of defence, but it needs reframing. And here I can circle back to the original question and the need to do both UBI and UBS together. If we step back from the immediate details and the implementation of either scheme, you can think of both of these demands as being part of a wider process of decommodification. In other words, removing things from the market and instead rewiring the economy for people and planet instead of profit. What's crucial about UBI is that it involves the decommodification of the most important commodity that exists under capitalism, which is labour. UBI breaks the relationship between income and paid work, so it decommodifies the one completely non-renewable resource that we have, which is our own time. Now, I've been personally very influenced by the work of the political ecologist Andre Gortz in thinking about this, about how work is the central institution of capitalism. And once you start to seriously question this, you start to crack open the whole system. What is considered work under capitalism, what isn't, is a subject for a future show entirely, and something that will likely be covered in a special episode of Macrodose Extra with Sarah Jaffe and Silvia Federici, which will be available next month for Patreons. All this is to say that UBI pilots, like the one Autonomy is planning, are important. They're important because they strike at the heart of how capitalism operates, and that's why they're the subject of so much controversy. It's a test to see how people will act once some part of their own time is entirely their own. Results from earlier pilots in Finland, for example, have tended to be very promising, that given a bit of space and security to themselves, people tend to be creative and often productive with that time. Reported well-being from participants in the Finnish trial was improved, and levels of depression, anxiety and so on dropped off. There was the additional benefit that participants had a little more freedom to choose the kinds of work they could do. They now had the capacity to turn down low-paying work. What you can start to see here is a microcosm of a different kind of society one in which we start to hand free time back to people, time away from work to use as they please, for their own creativity or care work or or really just sitting around with their friends. I'm not that interested in making a value judgment about this. As Karl Marx's son-in-law, Paul Lafargue, once wrote, in a truly free society, we should all have the right to be lazy. Anyway, thank you so much for your support, Harry, and I hope that goes some way to answering your question. Right, on to our second story today. A couple of weeks ago in this podcast, we covered Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves' trip to Washington, D.C. in a speech she made there setting out Labour's plans for the economy, attempting to align her party, at least rhetorically, with Joe Biden and Bidenomics. In that speech, Reeves posed a sharp break with the neoliberal consensus of the last 40 years or so and set out what the Financial Times called her bold plans for the future of Britain. Unfortunately, since then, many of Labour's so-called bold plans have been somewhat reduced in stature. As we said in that episode, Reeves declined to mention in her speech Labour's pledge to commit an average of £28 billion a year in green spending in every year of the next parliament. Reeves and the Labour Party say now that they will only commit to spending this much from halfway through the next parliament. So in other words, for the last three years of the next government, it's a big reduction in the amount of planned spending. Reeves, making that new announcement, claimed that the reduction was mostly due to the changed economic circumstances since the £28 billion was first announced at Labour Party conference a couple of years ago. It's true that spending £28 billion a year all at once would be quite difficult. We don't have, for example, much in the way of capacity to build wind turbines here, so that would need building up over time. But that ought to mean spending less than £28 billion a year to start with, and then more than £28 billion towards the end of the five-year parliamentary term. 
It's also true that borrowing costs have risen significantly since the original announcement. Hilariously, the cost of government borrowing today is actually higher than it was after the Liz Truss's mini-budget in September last year, when we were all told the sky was going to fall in and so on. It's almost like the problems we face are slightly bigger than whether or not someone the sensible centrists approve of gets to sit in 10 Downing Street. But I digress. The problem with the argument about the financial circumstances have changed is, first, that borrowing isn't the only course of action open to government to fund its activities. It could, most obviously, raise taxes. But Reeves and her team have boxed themselves into a corner on this, even ruling out the low-hanging fruit like equalising capital gains tax and income tax rates, which, as I've said before, would raise about £16 billion a year. Second, and perhaps more fundamentally, is something Reeves herself argued when initially announcing that £28 billion a year spending. And that is that the costs of inaction here will rise rapidly the more that we delay on climate change. This even has an impact on the sacred deficit. The Office of Budget Responsibility, the government's official forecasters, have now calculated the future costs of climate change to the UK, and their forecast suggests that between extreme weather events, crop failures, the rising costs of heat and flooding, would push government's debt not far off 300% of GDP by the end of this century. For comparison, it's now about 100% of GDP. Now, this is an enormous cost, far outweighing any investment that could plausibly be made today in mitigation and adaptation measures. As the OBR itself argues, it creates a very solid case for significant investment today in climate change spending. In any case, the £28 billion figure came under attack almost immediately after it was announced. Both Peter Mandelson and Ed Balls had been vocal previously in trying to claim it was excessive. More recently, it looks like other shadow ministers have been complaining about the amount it was taking up relative to Reeves' refusal to spend more cash on their own departments. And it has to be said, the opportunity to detail what the £28 billion might be spent on more precisely, making the case for specific investments to create jobs in particular parts of the country, for example, has not actually really happened. Had the left been more active in this point, the pledge might well have looked less exposed. In any case, the result is that we have a figure for investment that was already lower than what we need to get to net zero by 2050 that has now been whittled away further. It doesn't bode well that Labour are backtracking on this spending even before they got into government. As always, we do need to pay attention to the detail of what's going on in the Labour Party, even if we don't like it. Pressure from outside of Parliament is the only way we're going to get anything constructive done inside of it. And given the immediate and multiple crises we now face, we unfortunately don't have the luxury of sitting back and hoping the Labour Party will change their mind on their own. So if you're minded to, write to your MP about the decision to shrink the Green Prosperity Plan or join the next protest in your local area. These things make a difference and we need them now more than ever. On that note, it's time for our third and final story of the week. And this time it's something a little more positive. Last week, it was announced that the state government of Kerala in southern India had launched a publicly owned fibre optic broadband provider, KFON, to improve provision across the state. KFON would provide low-cost access to broadband for most households, but even included for a planned 2 million low-income households, offering broadband for no cost at all. Kerala state government announced two years ago that it wanted to make broadband access a universal human right, and of course they're right to do so. Not just right, but we're ahead of other countries, including Britain. Whilst Kerala, which has a GDP per capita of just over $3,000, is looking to provide free broadband access to 2 million poor households, Britain, which has a GDP per capita of around $43,000, has seen 1 million of the poorest households cut off from broadband in the last year. 
We are quite definitely going backwards on provision and access. Yet at the same time, our broadband providers are profiteering, whacking up charges this year and making extraordinary profits from the service. Kerala's publicly owned provider, by contrast, can provide low and free access to broadband. If you want a universal basic services provision, free or at least low-cost broadband is a very good place to start. Of course, Kerala is something of an exception in many ways, ruled for most of the last few decades by the Communist Party Marxists, typically winning elections in coalition with other left parties. The state has an exceptional record for the provision of healthcare and education, and has pushed through land reform soon after independence, all of which helps account for it being amongst the richest states in India, but also one of the more equal and with the highest rankings of any Indian state on the UN's Human Development Index. The public broadband service is a continuation of that approach and stands in stark contrast to Britain, where the same proposal as made by Labour in the 2019 general election was greeted with squeals of horror and the claims that this was broadband communism, as the BBC's Politics Live memorably and helpfully named it. Now, there is some irony that in Britain, a country that is about 14 times richer than Kerala, this sensible and affordable measure was denounced as extremist communism, whilst in Kerala, literal communists are busily getting on with putting it in place. The poverty of ambition in Britain sometimes beggars belief. But we don't have to accept living like this. And as the cost of living crisis grinds on, we shouldn't just be harking back to solutions from the past, but looking to radically transform the systems we depend on. And we could do worse than looking elsewhere in the world for inspiration. Thank you for listening to today's show. Macrodose is a Planet B production. If you enjoyed the show and you'd recommend it to friends, please consider leaving us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find all our episodes, including our bonus interview content, on our Patreon at patreon.com slash macrodose.